Today on CityCast Denver, this summer marks 30 years since John Singleton released his masterpiece Boys in the Hood about young men growing up in gangs in Los Angeles, mainly the Crips and the Bloods. Who is it that's dying out here on these streets every night? Young brothers like yourselves. What am I supposed to do? Fool roll up, try to smoke me? You shoot the m- he don't kill me first. You're doing exactly what they want you to do. Gangs have changed a lot since the early 90s, especially here in Denver. Yes, Denver. I'll be in coffee shops and people ask what you do and I tell them and whether they're um, from Colorado or not and they're like, well, I didn't know we have a gang problem. Today is Monday, July 19th, 2021. I'm Danielle Betts and this is CityCast Denver. And now, the news. It's going to be sunny with the high around 95. So the forecast is hot. It's hot. Not Texas hot, but hot. So you might want to find a pool. Today's top story comes from city council. Apparently, they're considering changing the way the council works. Right now, the city is represented by 11 district members and two at-large members who represent the whole city. Some members are concerned that our population is growing so rapidly that they should consider eliminating the two at-large seats in favor of adding two more districts and members who represent them. Personally, I think we should keep the at-large seats. It's nice to have representatives that can listen to all voices from all the districts, not just one. They're going to keep talking about a variety of possible configurations, and voters will have to approve any change in November. Also in the news is the reopening of the central branch of the Denver Public Library. I was driving downtown last week and it looked like a disaster. So I was surprised to see it was back open as of yesterday. Renovation will continue through 2022, but we now have limited access Sunday through Thursday, 1 to 5 p.m. Curbside pickup service will be available Sundays, 1 to 5 p.m. And Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. The reason why this is important is that the central branch, as well as all other branches of the library system, offer internet access and shelter to people who wouldn't otherwise have access to it. When I first moved to Denver, one of the first places I lived was Jasmine Street in Park Hill. I spent a lot of time at what is now called the Hiawatha Davis Recreational Center. I was mentoring kids in math and science and swimming with them in the pool. I heard gunshots sometimes, but it was no big deal. And then earlier this year, I read a book called The Holly by Julian Rubenstein about gang violence in Denver and the Park Hill neighborhood in particular. Like a lot of people who lived there at that time, the early 70s, I was not aware of gang activities in that area because it was such a cool neighborhood. It still is. But according to Julian and his book, it still has a gang problem too. Uh, Okay, so uh, Nicole, can you tell me what you had for breakfast this morning? I had a smoothie. What kind of smoothie? Chocolate. So it wasn't a smoothie. It was a milkshake in a box. It's, it's, so it's always so room for a little bit of chocolate. <laughs> as people say, there's always room for a little bit of chocolate, right? Chocolate, chocolate's life. So last week, CityCast producer Paul Caroli and I went downtown to the police administration building, which is a really weird place, kind of a fortress, shall we say, to ask the city's new director of anti-gang operations about what gang violence looks like in Denver today and the 14-year program she's taken over. 
So I always like to start interviews off the way my mentor did. I don't know if you know the name Dr. Vinton Harding. He was a professor emeritus at Olive School of Theology. He was a colleague of Martin Luther King. He liked to start his interviews this way. So tell me your full name. Oh, sure. It's Nicole Sharice Monroe. And tell me your mama's name and your mama's mama's name and where you spent your childhood. <laughs> well, I am the, the daughter of April Monroe and who is daughter to uh, Don Tochihara, um, but grew up in, well, born in Denver, so definitely a native through and through, but most of the time was in North Aurora, definitely around uh, along like Montview Boulevard. Um, all our family, friends, real close there, live around a block and a half from each other. The um, real Aurora. Oh, yeah. Can you walk us through really what are the gang issues here in Denver, Denver Metro, and how you really plan to address that? You know, not you personally, but the, the team. Since it's originally started in 2007, some would say we still have the same issues, if not worse. I think it's a fair statement. I mean, we still have the issues of, in the sense of, there, there is uh, a culture of gangs here in Denver. There's, there's no denying that. It looks different from when I first came on board in 2016. Uh, it looks different from a year ago to 30 days ago. It's, it's very dynamic in how it changes. As of right now, I mean, for some who are maybe not familiar with the culture, because actually I'll be in coffee shops and people ask what you do and I tell them and whether they're um, from Colorado or not, and they're like, wow, I didn't even know we have a gang problem. Um, and so for it's interesting, too, especially because where I grew up, I mean, that's it's common knowledge for me. But um, it's I mean, we can go all the way back to that for generations. Denver has has had a, a history with gangs and you can fast forward to the 80s, the 1980s, um, to where you had some influence from California gangs coming in, Crips Bloods. Uh, fast forward another decade in the 90s, you saw an increase in Hispanic gangs. Um, but then fast forward even to now where Denver's unique um, compared to, to other locations across the city, other cities. Are, we're having an increase with hybrid gangs. And these are gangs that typically have uh, branched off of some generational, traditional gangs that we have within Denver. Um, so there are those generational ties, but they're the dynamics are different from maybe those traditional gangs. And these are, are ones typically, and quite honestly, I mean, they can be as young as 11 years of age um, to 21, but these ones, they are definitely one to, to recognize that they could be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous than some of those traditional gangs. Um, speaking to the, their age and being younger, um, their access to weapons, the way groups are able to collaborate when it's, uh, if we're looking uh, criminally, as far as with drugs or weapons, whatever the opportunity is. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that right now. And so with it, we actually, it was back in 2015, had a, um, an audit with our partners. Within that one audit, there was probably about 45, 50 plus um, hybrid gangs that were around at that time. Since then, I can only imagine it's maybe doubled, um, if not tripled, since then. And that just also speaks to the culture of how those can break up because of conflict internally um, or opportunities outside of it to where then other groups will start pairing up with each other. Um, but with those, then we, we take a look and we're able to see like the genesis of how did they come together. That gives us an idea of um, how do we maybe better partner with the schools? How can we get connected with individuals because they spend most of their day there? A lot of those relationships are formed. 
So we're looking at, let's talk about the years in 2019 to 2021, increasing crime. And there's been an uptick, mm-hmm. especially this, this last two years, 2020 and 2021. Would you say that's gang-related? Overall, we, do, we are seeing an increase. Like if we were looking at, at murder, uh, aggravated assaults, um, there, it, the numbers are increasing. As far as the numbers, like if I point to data that comes from DPD analysts, there is showing whether it's um, gang-related or gang-motivated that that is increasing as well. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Nicole was that she recently started leading Denver's anti-gang efforts in September of 2020. Formerly known as GRID, or Gang Reduction Initiative of Denver, the new Office of Community Violence Solutions is a network of government agencies, local businesses, community-based grassroots, and faith-based organizations that work in a collaborative manner to address gang violence. And the budget for 2021 is just over $1.1 million, which is not that much money in the scheme of things. But it's not just city staffers doing this work. As the Holly highlighted, it's people who know the environment and in some cases are former gang members or active gang members themselves. I want to ask you now, the use of active gang members or gang-affiliated members, do you think that's wise to use federal dollars to involve active gang members? It's a long-time concern if we're looking at gang street outreach, if we're looking at violence interruption services that are provided. Being able to uh, identify key individuals who have that relationship within the community, not just anybody can just, I mean, there's parts where, I mean, I, I feel pretty comfortable, familiar, welcomed enough to where I can go into just about any community um, and, and be well-received. But then once you start going in there and asking questions or getting a pulse of what happened and do you have an idea who the shooter was or, well, who's beefing with who? Um, well, then who's, is there going to be a retaliation effort? And if, if so, then how can we intervene? There's just a way that you can't just walk in and then to be able to get that information. There, there is with that um, perhaps having that, that community or those connections there, there is a, a fine line as far as maybe what that embeddedness looks like. Um, however, that's where the city, we do have a protocol in place to where we can address that issue. And definitely any time that it is brought to our attention, um, and at least I can confidently speak to, at least in definitely in my, in my time and, and moving forward, that I'm open to, um, or actually obliged to have those conversations and address it. The scope of our work, we're going to attract individuals or staff um, who want to do this work, who most likely will have a criminal background. And we're okay with that. If we're working with individuals and believe in a second chance, I'm going to believe in a second chance for people who are working with us as well. Um, but with that, it, there's also those factors that we roll out as well. Part of that background um, is the obvious offenses of like a, a, a crime against a child or a sex offense. Um, if they're currently on active parole in the moment, because they can come later. If they're involved in active gang culture, so if they are engaged in criminal activities, if they are engaged or promoting um, the gang culture or criminal activities, and those are things it's a little harder um, perhaps to identify, but then that's why we have individuals who are familiar with the culture and what's current in the streets to where I can ask somebody about somebody and, oh yeah, he's active. Um, or no, he's been laying low for months, he's been changing, he wants to help his community, he did his time, he... He brought um, pain, and he wants to, to make amends. Um, so those are the things that we do our due diligence on. How are you reaching out to uh, the environment of the children? I'm talking about parents in particular. Um, I know some parents just not even aware. 
that their children may be, you know, uh, influenced by a gang. Do you see your office um, working with parents? Um, they are a key piece in this. Um, and that's actually part of, uh, I can go more so into our outreach, our intervention component. Outreach more so focuses on the uh, gang assistance. Um, they're the ones that are having those conversations with their clients, getting an idea of what their embeddedness looks like in the gang culture to where if they're more of like a, an associate or just kind of on the peripheral of the gang or if they're actually like a shot caller. And then they they have those conversations as they're helping them navigate the system and, and providing those positive alternatives to where it's, um, if we're asking you to, to stop selling drugs, well, we need to replace that with something. So how can we help you find a job? Okay, well, you're not making as much money as you were before, so how do we maybe address some of your, your core belief systems, your core values? Um, but as they're working one-on-one with them, the family component is huge, and that's as we're working with. Um, like DHS is at the table. We might get a better insight of what the family dynamics look like, what's their interactions look like with their parents, who's, who's missing from the home. Is it a single-family parent home? Are they being raised by their great-grandmother? Um, what are some needs that they um, need, like as basic needs, or again, just a general sense of that culture as well, um, to where you can walk in and we can do so much work on this individual. However, we've recognized that because of the the support they may have, or even just the influence of who's within the home or within the community, we do try and get um, we work closely with those individuals to be able to provide them services as well. So as they go in and if we can get mom connected to mental health services, if we can help her with better understanding trauma and maybe um, taking care of some of her stuff and how that impacts the relationship with her child and even maybe some of the trauma um, effects that their child is, is, is experiencing, we do look at that as a whole and how we can address the whole system and not just the individual. What can the public look for as a, a measure of, of some sort of success? I think overall, um, it's going to be when we see that success is, I mean, you'll see it in the individuals who are directly part of the project. And if that's in the sense of they're providing that direct service or if they're receiving those services, um, even individuals who are within the community, you'll see success when you ask a young lady if she feels safe. If you ask a young man if he knows where he can turn to when he needs help. Um, I think you'll see when there's there's pride within a community and where the conversation shifts from, and more particularly if we look at some of those locations that have been identified as like um, high crime, violent crime hotspots. So like the Holly, or if we're looking in, in Westwood or whatever the location across the city to where it's, that's not the focal point of the conversation, but it is more so on the people within that community. It's when we recognize how culture has been preserved. Um, if you look at historical five points, and, and and again, that conversation shifts from, well, did you hear about those shootings or drive-bys that evening? And versus like the culture and music and the food, but not in the sense to where we're avoiding the conversation of, of violence, but I think it shows that the balance has shifted. Um, and I think that's where we'll actually see that true success. Thank you for being open and honest and transparent. I hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you. It's definitely a pleasure to be here. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, 
why not take a minute to tell a friend about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. I'm Donnie Betts. Look forward to spending some time with you tomorrow. You good? I'm good. Okay, well, you have to edit this. <laughs> I got my iPad. Okay. All right, you know. Yeah.